Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is a Folk U Radio 101 show where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? It's that time of year where the light slips away and we prepare to sit around the fire and tell stories of seasons past. And I invite you to take a moment with me to appreciate the land wherever you are, the place and the people that came before and the stories that they told. I am broadcasting from the Cortez Community Radio Station here on Cortez Island, which is on the unceded territory of the Kalahus, Slyaman, and Hamako peoples. Thanks to the land and to all those who are part of looking after these places that we call home, then and now. I am really thrilled about today's show. Today we are doing the show in collaboration with the Cortez Island Museum and Archives, and the show is on memories of Christmas past. I'm already anticipating where this year is going to be a Christmas past and we can just enjoy that time when um, I think it will be more memorable in the future, more, not more, more enjoyable in the future. Um, I, I remember this quote that I have as part of my email signature sometimes that um, I heard another writer say, and this writer was quoting someone who they could not remember, who was also a writer. And this writer said that painters love to paint, but writers love to have written. And I feel like that about this year, like we're, it's all going to be wonderful if we survive it and we're talking about it in the future. So we have a show that we're going to try to make wonderful in the making and the listening and also later when we're talking about it in our Christmas futures. So today we're going to welcome into the studio, Jane Newman. Jane is going to share with us some updates on the museum and archives, the Cortez Island Museum and Archives, what they are doing right now, already thinking about how we are going to make history, to make memories out of this pandemic. Um, and we're going to get some other updates about, they've been busy. They, they're not just sitting around there. They've been busy. And it's story time here. Um, thanks to Jane and the museum, we, we are going to actually get something I have been dreaming about for years, which is good old-fashioned Cortez Christmas story time. So Jane is going to join us to read a story by Gillian Douglas, written in her cabin in the caribou country, about the unexpected pleasures of spending the holiday alone. 
This is from the book Writing Nature, Finding Home by Jill Milton and is available for sale at the Cortez Island Museum and Archives shop, which is open and we'll find out when it is still open and if you can get your last minute gifts um, when, jo- when Jane is on. Then later in the show, we're going to also hear from your neighbor and mine, Gary Cork and Monica Narwaki. Gary's going to share a story and a poem by Roald Dahl and his experiences of meeting the author. And Monica is going to uh, read us a, another story. So here we are. Welcome to the studio, Jane. Thank you. It's great to be here on a windy day. Oh, man, we're lucky to have power. And I hope wherever you are, you are lucky to have power or at least a really nice wood burning stove. Cozy. We need to be cozy right now. We need to be cozy. We do. Uh, Thank you for helping to help make this little dream of mine come true. I really appreciate it. Well, we've been talking about it for a while and we really, really felt like this was the perfect time to just get onto the radio and and do some, you know, collaborating with Fokyu and Manda and just be able to have some, you know, open up, unlock the archives and see what we've got in there as far as uh, neat old history and just get out there to you, our public in on Cortez Island, who we really miss, even though we're seeing some of you, we're not seeing as many of you as we typically would love to. So it's great to be here today. Um, thank you for, for making that happen. And um, yeah, and it feels like the radio for me right now has been a chance to really feel like I am still in community with my community. These moments, and I know it's probably not the same for for everyone listening as it is for me because I get to have someone call in or join me six feet away with our really safe, you know, <laughs> protocols in the station. But it, but it feels like we are still getting to have a conversation about what this time is and how to make sense of it. So um, I just feel super honored um, to all those who have been helping make community happen in these weird and strange times where it has to look so different. And I have been um, f- like really pleased to think that the museum is helping us make sense of these times. Um, and, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like you're making sense of them yet, but I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the number of the things that you have going on, including what is going on right now with trying to keep track of pandemic memorabilia, I guess, for lack of a better word. Great. That's that's an interesting uh, question and variety of questions. Uh, I think some of you probably have heard of the Now or Never collection uh, project that Uh, began quite a while ago during the pandemic, but not at the very front end of it. Uh, We we realized we were getting a few questions from people about um, previous pandemics that uh, had happened on the planet. And uh, was there anything in our archives or information files or uh, uh, to be found anywhere at the museum that told about how people managed their lives and their experience of the pandemic in the past and uh, or the flu, um, you know, the Spanish flu particularly. And we went into our files, etc., our archives, and we found almost nothing. And we were really saddened by that because we know that there's a lot of resilient people that have lived on Cortez over many years, uh, starting with First Nations and, and, you know, with the settlers then arriving 
driving and uh, facing all sorts of challenging scenarios as far as um, health and the world impact of that on a small island with small populations. And so what what sparked us then when we were um, probably about three months into the pandemic or maybe two months in, uh, we thought we better start collecting now. And uh, we noticed that several other museums were already doing that as well. And we put out a call for anybody that had created anything of interest that was their way of dealing with living in isolation from all their neighbors and friends and family and, you know, raising small children in a space where you couldn't then connect with your friends and they weren't going to school anymore and you might be working, but you had to still take care of your three-year-old and your six-year-old. And, you know, what did you cook and did you garden more? And were you creating any art or what were you writing about in your journals? And, and any and all of that and photos and videos and things like that, we really reached out to the community and said, we will collect anything that you can provide us that would be of, of interest that is, you know, you're, you, and it was important, whatever it was, doesn't need to be a polished thing. It, it can be rough and, and, and a raw and whatever, but, and it's not about us looking at it and necessarily doing anything as far as exhibit or putting it out there into the public eye at all right now, but it is actually having it available for future generations or future time periods where people may experience a pandemic again. And what did Cortesians at that point in time in 2020 do to maintain resilience and 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 weather the storm of pandemic and and be be connecting or or not connecting what did people do and i'd say in some ways really it's it's the results are wonderful the things that came in have been wonderful but we really feel like there's a lot more out there in the community that people haven't shared for whatever reason and we're just saying that the collecting initiative continues and if you have anything in in your home, in your journal, in your camera, uh, you know, a piece of music that helped you weather it, anything that you feel was relevant or still is relevant, uh, we'd love to have it. We'd love to to keep it, you know, for future. And perhaps there'll be a day when we do something with an exhibit or something like that. But at this point, there isn't a plan for that. Oh, I feel so excited. I have so many things I want to, and I want to get my teenager mm-hmm. to write, even if it were just down her daily schedule, just to see, you know, day after day, um, the, how you make visible, visible, visible day after day at the age of not seeing anyone else your age or the the amount of time, right? I wish I could just capture three of us trying to run Zoom meetings in one small space with unreliable <laughs> internet, you know, and, and beautying and being like, now it's your turn to talk. And <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> right, awkward. awkward. And um, this is where I need more artists in my life to, to make that into to, to art. Um, so I feel like this also leads to something else that I know the the museum uh, and archives has been working on, which is a digitalization pr- 
project. And can you talk a little bit about what that is and why people should care? Well, it's it's fascinating. I mean, one of the reasons why people should care, I think, is that we house the we are the repository for all of the phones and uh, memorabilia and different um, photographs and audio recordings and this, that and the other thing that from many Cortez families over the past um, and all of those things have been kept in boxes and over the last number of years, two years actually, the, the Archive Committee uh, applied to Library and Archives Canada um, and were successful with two grants and one of them was to get all of the uh, backlog of archival information that had not been processed, processed and it's something like 11 meters of 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 material you know it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I might be a little bit incorrect in that that figure but it's a quite an astounding number of of uh, pieces of paper and uh, we in the exhibit at the museum right now um, that's been on uh, throughout this year uh, there is a uh, one of the installation pieces there does kind of give you a, a feel for the breadth of what that size of you know how many documents that really is and so they were able to completely address the backlog and get all of those um, items into the correct boxes and labeled and really really well understood and then digitized up onto um, in magic which is program we use in our uh, museum and then uh, then they were uh, the archives committee applied for a second grant and that is now to digitize all of the photographs and slides that are in our collection and they're partway through that process right now and that um, project still goes into 2021 as well part of the grant so that will be completed and there will be a campaign that's been going out I don't know if many of you are on Instagram that are listening but the museum does now have an Instagram account and one of the the pieces that people will notice if they are on Instagram and they are following the museum is there are likely it's weekly right now there's um, a, a images being shared and those are from the recently uh, dig photographed and digitized or sorry they're photographs that have been digitized and um, as that work is being done they're coming across specific ones that seem to lend themselves well to uh, an Instagram post so that was one of the things that um, sort of came about with this grant that we'd re we'd resisted Instagram because we are already Facebook we have a website etc and we wanted to do it properly we wanted to be able to do it well and in order to do Instagram well we all know that you need to post regularly and we felt like we were at a point where we could do that so we really are moving into the digital world more so than um, some people love you know because lots of people love on the ground come to the museum see exhibits but there's a lot of information available for researchers and people that are housebound and for people that are doing a research project even on Cortez where you don't physically have to visit the space so uh, if you're curious about any of this and you have, you know, an interest in a specific topic, you can just call us or email us and we can set you up as far as, you know, how to access some of the material. I won't go into details on that right now, but the Archives Committee has been working very diligently and very effectively uh, on that, um, that project, those projects. I'm already imagining future shows um, and how, just how much easier it is to plan and create when you can find 
material um, and just even find out what is there. Um, so if people want to find out about your Instagram address uh, or your website, can you, I guess if you can give us your website, then they can get your Instagram um, connection and your Facebook connection from there? Yes, definitely. Okay. CortezMuseum.ca. Oh, that- we nice. made it easy. Yeah. You know, we could be like Cortez Island Museum and Archive Society. But no, cortezmuseum.ca. Well done. You yeah. Get, you get bonus points for that. Um, can you tell us, uh, I think you have a, a bird count coming up. Is there anything else that you want us to know about that um, is happening at the museum right now? Yes, I'd love to share a few things because we are busy. It's interesting. I kind of thought, oh, I'm going to be on holidays soon. Not. There's so much going on. And right now, the next thing that you will um, might you know be curious about and interested in um, being involved in is the the. Uh, Christmas bird count which happens on Cortez every year and it's associated with the Audubon um, bird count uh, around the world there's everybody counting within a certain time frame I think it's three days like there's about a week time frame but what it is is uh, the current date is is December 27th and in the event of a um, really inclement weather that day it's the next date is January 2nd and what's happening because of COVID and Dr. Bonnie Henry's new directives, et cetera, about gathering is you really, there are leaders that are going out to do specific areas that are mapped and are consistently done every year. Um, and it is encouraged. We're not, groups of people are not going with those leaders this year as would typically be, but you would go out in your own yard and or environment and it's counting species it's not counting numbers of birds so that is the one thing that's different um, with the christmas bird count compared to the spring bird count counting species not numbers of birds that you're witnessing and uh yeah take your bird book and get your binoculars and see how many birds you'd be able to identify and then you can report that in to the museum via email or phone call and um, that's one thing that's coming up. The next thing that is coming up, it's in January, but uh, we, some of you probably heard rumblings of a Twin Islands book, and I have the book in front of me in the radio station, and it's called Twin Islands, History and Legacy on the B.C. Coast by Jeanette Taylor. And Jeanette's uh, come and given presentations and talks for the Cortez Museum before, and she's just both a wonderful historian and writer and a wonderful presenter. And what she's uh, doing for us is on the uh, either the 23rd or the 30th of January, and that date is still to be determined because uh, there was just a few uh, things need to be squared away. Uh, she's going to be giving a presentation about the book and a slideshow. And Mark Torrance, the owner of Twin Islands uh, currently is also going to be involved in that presentation and the uh, whole thing will be done via Zoom. So it uh, we're all getting reasonably good at this, I think, and uh, it's not maybe the best um, scenario for some people, but it certainly can be engaging and you can really sit back from the comfort of your home and be engaged in a pretty lovely uh, presentation. And um, we're hoping that lots of people will want to attend this and it will be a free uh, offering. The museum, we love offering all of our programs free and uh, we will want people to pre-register. So there will be some 
advertising that'll come out in early January with a confirmed date. And we're trying to decide whether afternoon or evening is the better time of day. We haven't quite settled on that yet. Uh, Anyway, there are some... Now, the thing about the Twin Islands book is that it actually isn't for sale in the broad public yet. There isn't um, like... uh, So I think Marnie's books probably does have a few copies because I did hear that she was going to get a few copies and the museum will likely have a few copies over the next short while but it is not for sale like on the ferry and you know in the other bookstores that are around yet that is probably something that will happen in the near while but it isn't ready yet I just love when Cortez gets to have to be the advanced first place. But this is this is not even the first time this year where we got to be the first place in the world where a new book was for sale. So we we were cutting edge. We are cutting edge. I can go on. Should I say a few more things? I won't I won't yes. take too much longer to say what's coming up, but there are some new exhibits that are coming and we're actually pretty excited about that. I am the managing director curator at the museum and there are a number of other people that are on the curatorial team and the exhibit committee and we're all excited when there's an opportunity for new exhibits because it's the creative part of the work. A lot of the work is creative, but this is a really creative part. So uh, while Cortez is currently doing a new exhibit and It's called The Big Three, and it is about the large carnivores on Cortez Island, wolves, bears, cougars. I don't need to tell you much more, but there is going to be a really dynamic uh, exhibition that will be, uh, it is in the process of being installed, and I can't say what the opening date will be, but stay tuned for information in January 2021. And we'll let you know when that is happening. Of course, while Cortez hasn't been open for the last few weeks, we're usually open Saturdays, 12 to 3. And if you are interested in anything over the coming years, months, days, weeks uh, regarding Wild Cortez, please be in touch. We're really trying to get the word out about this fabulous exhibit and um, gallery space and everything, everything wild uh, that's uh, existing on Cortez at this point. There's also a new exhibit that's coming in. It's called Listening to Bees, and that will be in the spring. We've had a really great uh, discussion, conversation with Paul Stamets about various uh, ways that we can really help the bees and be on the bee patrol. So stay tuned for listening to bees. We're really excited about that one. And then one last one that's coming up, uh, it'll happen probably earlier than any of the exhibits, is one that's called Behind the Scenes, a Photographer's Workshop. And stay tuned for information about that in January 2021. Uh, We are working to um, uh, um, have all of the artifacts that we uh, in our holdings, the Artifacts Collection Committee has been working hard and will be hopefully being able to meet more and more in January, February. And every time an artifact is accessioned and any of the past artifact, the uh, past accessioned artifacts will want to take photographs of everything. So that then is the next digitization process and project is all of the artifacts will be digitized and that will create a really exciting interface between archival information, artifact information, and probably some lovely and surprising combinations of things to help curators and researchers and things like that find even more uh, about what's happening in our collections at the Cortez Museum and how they might enhance someone's writing or art or life. It's just amazing to me that this little 
museum started by, you know, volunteers um, has this much going on. I feel so impressed, so honored, um, really excited about the 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 blending of, of future and past that you're helping make happen there, um, along with your awesome team of of largely volunteers, I believe. Wow. Wow. You would not believe the number of volunteer hours that people do. I feel I feel so honored because I'm paid for my work, but wow. There are copious, copious numbers of volunteers putting in hugely dedicated number of hours because they're passionate about it. And they believe in this island and the community and every aspect of, you know, preserving things for future generations. So it's, it's exciting. There's a lot going on. And it, you, make, you, seem, you make it fun. That's what I notice. Like uh, when I am talking to you or the other volunteers, I really have fun with them. Um, it's people who are finding their passion and finding that nice edge about how to share that with the community. So thank you. And it makes me really curious about your story. Like, how, how did you get here and, and end up at this little museum at the end of the road? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I have kind of a funny little roundabout way that I ended up arriving at Cortez. And uh, I have close friends, uh, Colin and Connie, who live on the South End. And they had moved to Cortez. Uh, Colin had come here for work. And the house beside a house that they were buying was for sale. And they put out an email to a little network of their people that they thought maybe would be interested and said, look, the house beside the house we just bought is for sale on Cortez Island, Discovery Islands, off Campbell River, two ferry, you know, all this. And come, someone come and buy it. So Brian and I, we sort of looked at each other and thought, you know what? We've kind of been thinking about a change. I was living in Banff for 40 years and Brian had been living in Edmonton for 40 years. And we were sort of like, okay, let's go somewhere. Let's choose something different. And um, we thought, let's go look at it. So we came in February, you know, February 8th or something, dark and stormy night, arrived in the dark, driving down this island that it's like to the south end. You're like, where are we? It's dark. <laughs> and anyway, long story short, we decided to buy that house. And we that was in 2015. And so we've been living here. I've been living here really about three years. And Brian just moved here a year ago. And the museum job came up about six months after I arrived here. And I hadn't actually been really thinking that I was going to move into sort of a, a career type job, but more of I was gardening for people. I'm an artist. So I was doing art and thinking, you know, I'll get some exhibits happening and sell some art and just, you know, eke out an existence uh, work at Hollyhock a little, you know, whatever. And then the job, and it was a new position. The museum had uh, sought funding from the BC Arts Council for operating assistance. And uh, it was a position that was funded. And it was the first time that they'd had a managing director curator that would have been a paid position. I saw it and it really fit with my past. I was more in arts and culture. I'd worked a lot in the not-for-profit world and had done a lot of curating of, of art, my own work, and, and helping others uh, sometimes with that. So it seemed like a fit, and I just didn't think. I'd, I thought there'd be lots of other people that would jump in, which I'm sure there were, and I, I like you all, and I hope you... <laughs> 
<laughs> there, you know, I hope it all is well and fine for everybody out there. But I've been so lucky. I've got such an amazing team. I was mentored so well and continue to be. Uh, I didn't know anything about the history of Cortez. And uh, we've gone through all sorts of different sort of manifestations of how we're articulating who we are and how we're exhibiting about what, what we have in our holdings. And, you know, the whole, you know, really looking at being more inclusive and more, you know, sort of really looking at uh, repatriation and reconciliation in a really meaningful way for uh, the community. Uh, and really, we hope that we're going to be able to really advance a lot of different things over the coming years, just like they have been in the past, but almost with 100% volunteer effort. So there's several staff there. Gina is administrative assistant and the web manager. And there's other contractors that we have at various times. So really, they are really movers and shakers. I I, <laughs> I love the vision of you driving down <laughs> the pitch dark, just sort of like you just came to the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and it all, and, and aren't we glad that you did? Mm-hmm. That's very nice. <laughs> that is a very nice thing to say, Amanda. Um, well, I really appreciate it. Um, and I am curious about you as an artist, because I... I knew I know that you're an artist and I've heard this from other people and I've sort of you know seen you before kind of in studio mode coming or going maybe from you know back in the past from Lisa Gibbons place or something like that but can you tell me a little bit about your art I'd love to I didn't know I'd have an opportunity to talk about my art here well I, have you got an hour <laughs> no we've got we've got an hour and a half left okay let's go no, I, you know, it's interesting. I think any artist at some point loves to say something about their art. And I haven't had an opportunity much on the radio to do that. Although I did uh, have an interview with Maureen Bader at one point earlier on, and she was doing the art series. And I don't know if she still is. But uh, yeah, I, I've been an artist for many years, I would say probably 30 years. And um, I, I'm very uh, sort of I've been called various things over many years. Like I have a lot of materials. So I'm a mixed media artist, but I do mixed media in another way beyond what typically mixed media might be imagined in people's brain is like two dimensional. You know, you're using a variety of things. There might be some texture to it and that, but I also do what's called assemblage. And that in some ways could still I think, be classified as mixed media, but it's taking things to a much uh, sort of more three-dimensional level. And I use a lot of rusty metal and found materials. Um, I love stuff from nature that I incorporate sticks and shells and stones and, and various things like that. But I do a lot with paint. I have collected, uh, as they say, various random things over the years. And I sometimes think that one of the most interesting things about what I do is not the actual artwork that I produce, which I I think is interesting, but it's the collection itself, the collection of materials that I have available to me to integrate into either mixed media or assemblage is fascinating. And I'd love to actually do uh, an art show that is an installation of the collection. 
And that's the next layer of the work that I'm so intrigued by is installation work. And in some ways, I look at the museum and I think, of course, we're doing exhibit installation there. So there's definitely a creative uh, a spark that I get when I think about installation. But when it's art and I was, if I imagined it and I had my own vision of it, uh, I could see a very, very fascinating a show of the collection itself and some of the outcomes of having that collection and what I would create and how something would find its way into the work. So that's that's kind of, in a nutshell, it. I love to make. I could be in the studio hours and hours a day if I, you know, if I really focused. And um, I'm very lucky to have a little studio. Brian and I built it. We built from scratch our own building we'd never built before. And we built a small studio on our property. It's about 12 by 16. And I think the only challenge with that studio is it's too small. (laughs) I hope it's made from all found materials, like (laughs) rusty nails and pine cones. Not. (laughs) No, darn. Um, Well, I'm envisioning a future where we could have a big, large installation space. I would love to see that installation, and I bet... A lot of other people would as well. You're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. And we have a special show today that we're doing in collaboration with the Cortez Island Museum and Archives Society. And we have Jane Newman in the studio with us. And she's about to do a reading for us. And I'm hoping that she's going to start by telling us what she's chosen and why. I have chosen a piece written by Ghislaine Douglas, uh, our well-loved woman of the day. Um, Many of you on the island will know of Ghislaine Douglas, who lived on what's now known as Channel Rock in a cabin on the edge of the ocean. And the interesting thing about my connection to Ghislaine, and it's really not a personal connection at all, is that years and years ago, I read a book from the Banff Public Library that I just happened upon called River for My Sidewalk, Ghislaine Douglas. And I liked that book so much that I probably took it out of the library three, four times and reread it. And it is about her time living in the caribou alone and with various visitors and people that would come and go. Um, And just uh, how she thrived in that environment. And so lo and behold, I moved to Cortez and I'm seeing all sorts of things by Ghislaine Douglas. And I'm like, what? That name rings a bell to me. And I read the book that I have in the studio with me right now too, uh, by um, Jillian Milton, our archivist at the museum and Andrea Lebowitz. And it's writing nature, finding home. And it's basically a lot of excerpts and, and uh, other uh, various um pieces of writing of Ghislaine's compiled. And when I was looking at that, I noticed that there were uh, various uh, pieces from the book River for My Sidewalk. And when I looked on the Cortez Museum's library shelf, sure enough, there's that book, River for My Sidewalk. I believe it's out of print. We don't sell it, but it is in the library. And I've just loved that book so much. It came across this, a reading about Christmas. 
So that's why I chose this. And uh, the beautiful thing is that Jill Milton has such a way with words, and she really knows how to put things together and describe things. And what she basically says about uh, this piece of writing is how she how Ghislaine celebrated the seasons as they turned and the simple pleasures of her rural life. And always a great fan of Christmas, Douglas wrote about the unexpected pleasures of spending the holiday alone. Merry Christmas to all. All day the snow had been coming down, big white flakes that seemed to be falling of their own weight, though they really were as light as the thistle down they covered in my clearing. All day the music of the rivers had been fading, until now it was only a thread of sound. Or was it a memory? All day the high mountains surrounding my valley had been softly receding. Then they disappeared entirely, and opal filled the air where they had been. It was evening, and in the mellow light from my living room oil lamp, the six-sided spaceships came softly, unhurriedly to the earth in their tens of trillions. The paths to the rivers shoveled that morning, were buried again in crystals, and beyond them, the uncleared trails had become one with drift and rise and hollow. On the fire-scarred mountain I must climb to reach the nearest house four miles away, the snow would be waist-deep by now. Too deep for me, loaded with a pack sack of gifts and city clothes. This was not ski country, and my bare-paw snowshoes had been loaned and lost." Two days before Christmas and my plans in tatters. Plans to get up at 3 a.m. and walk over the mountain to connect with a speeder, a rail car, leaving at 6 for the nearest railroad station. The branch line had been closed down since the first snowfall in October. There I was to catch a train for city celebrations in the home of friends. Now I would do none of this at all but spend Christmas, New Year's, and probably the rest of the winter snowed in with solitude. For a few moments I thought regretfully of baths and lights and of warmth, which I didn't have, an axe to in, which I didn't have to axe into existence, of that glorious promised turkey and the sparkling shop windows. Most of all, I thought of good talk and good friends. The door to all of this had been slammed shut in my face, and as I unpacked the rucksack I would have carried to town, I took out a few bright expectations, too. But I've always believed that when one door closes, another opens. So a door had opened for me now. Where was it, and what was behind it? But now there was my own Christmas tree to discover, wood to carry, paths to shovel, Evergreens to cut for decoration, river ice to break for water, more treats to find for the animals and birds I hoped would come to share them. I went spinning like a top from one inside job to another and then burst out the door into a world of wonder. So still, so white, so gloriously shining, so tall and vast, so utterly filled with snow and solitude. And I... This little I in the middle of it all. Oh, life, oh, life, I kept saying, this is too much. You have made it all too beautiful. I can hardly bear it. The snow stopped, but I didn't. 
I strung rose hips and western dogwood berries, popcorn I had grown and red huckleberries I had put down in jars. All the young fir, all for the young fir at the forest's edge, which would be my living, growing Christmas tree. Green cookies would go on it, and golden donuts, scarlet apples, carrot candles, turnip, and beet balls. I would share it with the birds, though already their own tree was decorated with suet, seeds in fat, seeds in honey, and sunflower seeds alone for the jays and varied thrushes. There was always food on the feeding tray, but this was special. No browse for the deer, for they were yarded up miles away, and the snow between was deep. Porridge with sweet fruit in it for the old coyote, and stew for the wildcat, who both came around for a handout now and then. In case the old and almost toothless cougar arrived, he would have both, a wash bowl of it near the Christmas tree. The bears would be hibernating, surely, and the birds wouldn't start coming until dawn, except for the owls, of course. Just before dusk, I went inside to stir up the fire, but I put no lights on. Munching a sandwich, I sat down by the window to watch. The sky had cleared, and behind Cougar Mountain, the moon was rising. The snow sparkled wherever light touched it, and the world outside was a child's dream story before life crumpled the page. But as the moon rose, my hopes fell. For two hours had gone by, and no guests had come to the feast. Would they come? Would there be a stranger among them to invoke the old Celtic blessing? Often, often, often goes the Christ in the stranger's guise. Then a gray shadow stirred as the coyote sidled slowly out of the cabin's darker shade. He went to the big bowl of porridge placed on the kitchen side of the house where he usually fed. At that moment I realized that the wildcat bowl was in use too. And was that a lean tawny movement near the forest woodpile? Were those golden eyes of a great gray owl in the hemlock but I forgot them all when I spotted a furry form rolling up the path from the river a bear looking like a two-year-old no not the same one which had been romping up and down the river all summer gorging himself on berries that one had a sharper face this one hardly seemed to notice his fellow diners but headed straight for the bird tree and honey I tore into the kitchen, opened a jar of fish, and tossed this towards him. The coyote and wildcat jumped away but came cautiously back. While Bruin was trying to get fish out of the snow, I opened more jars. As he was on the seventh, the forest pile seemed to lengthen and the old cougar came out into the moonlight. In its kind glow, he appeared almost young and invincible. The bear raised his head and looked at him. And then he grabbed up the last piece of fish and ambled rather hastily down the garden path. When I looked around, my holiday table was empty, except for the ancient one enjoying his porridge stew and taking another sandwich out of my pocket. But for a short while, we had all been there in peace and acceptance, cougar, coyote, wildcat, bear, owl, and human. For those moments, there had been something between us. A truce? No, more than that, a bond. I became truly part of all life then, and for a flash I saw how earth might have been. 
I was not even startled, only surprised that they had not spoken and the old tales of animals talking on Christmas Eve come alive again. But perhaps we did talk together. The stars glittered, the moon silver-coated the snow, the cougar and I ate. I felt that the others were not too far away watching. At least one of them came back, for next morning both trees were wrecks. And it didn't look like owl work. But it didn't matter either. I fixed them up again before the birds arrived, and Christmas Day feasting began. That day was a dream of heaven, blue and white and shining. I went through it on wings, and wings were all around me. Chickadee, wren, kinglet, jay, kingfisher, blackbird, varied thrush, creeper, nuthatch, grosbeak, bunting, redstart, water oozel, and even a willow ptarmigan down from the peaks. After dark, a pygmy owl hushed in, a saw-wet owl perched on my ridgepole, and later still, a horned owl came looking for mice that were looking for crumbs. Three of my four-footed friends returned, though not the bear, but he had played the stranger's part, and I was blessed indeed. Now I knew what door had opened, and that it would never open again for me in just this way. I looked up at the mountains, and the sapphire sky, to say thank you, thank you. It seemed so pitiful little for all I had been given. That's fantastic. And her, uh, her years in the Cascade, in Jill Milton's word, were pivotal for D- Ghislaine Douglas, working the land and celebrating the world around her through her writing, offering a way into a new state of being. Thank you, Ghislaine. I love that. It helps us to re-imagine uh, what it means to be alone on Christmas. Doesn't it? I, I thank you so much. We, um, I really love this this sharing. I really appreciate that you've helped put this together and that we got to share a little a little story by someone who I, I like how she talked about needing to axe the warmth into being and 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 remembering remembering simpler times because I think this is one of the things about um Glenn, whose name I struggled to pronounce is that she she chose these isolated lives it's like she was a city girl she was like she had to create and figure out her relationship with aloneness and wilderness just like most of us also have had to do who choose to live in these little island places and Mm -hmm. um and and that constant reflecting that she did on that yeah, she really did. She like she chose those wild places, really, and and as you say, we we all did too, and it's a different time. But yeah, 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 it's a little easier. We can we, yeah. we can still maybe have a hot bath <laughs> while we're making this choice. So we're gonna have a little bit of music so that we can do some turnover stuff in the studio. I hope you will uh, join us back for a little bit more story time after some Christmas songs. Let's
You're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is the Folk You Radio Show, and we have a special program we are doing today in collaboration with the Cortez Island Museum and Archive Society with Memories of Christmas Past. So we got to hear a wonderful selection by Ghislaine Douglas, read by Jane Newman as part of our earlier part of the show. And now I am excited to welcome into the studio Gary Quirk, who is going to read us yet another selection. Uh, We're super lucky that Gary found his way uh, to Cortez from Toronto uh, via travels in Mexico and Guatemala all the way to BC, where he got involved in food co-ops, alternative communities, all those things that uh, good Cortesians um, uh, like to, to get into on their way to this little island. And he helped start Edible Island in the Comox Valley. Along the way, he also became an acupuncturist. He and his wife, Eleanor, moved to Cortez in 1998. And besides all these other wonderful things, I hear somewhere along the way, you also got to meet uh, Roald Dahl, Gary. I did. All right. Well, I'm hoping you're going to tell us a little bit about how that happened. Right. Okay. Now? Yeah, you're you're here. Let's let's do it. Everybody knows um, Roald Dahl, especially if they have any kids. Um, So one of the things, just to start this off with, uh, Roald Dahl had a son, Theo, who had been involved in a car accident. And um, he had um, brain damage and he had to have a shunt put in. Um, and they did this at uh, the Great Ormond Street um, uh, Hospital, Children's Hospital, the, one of the biggest uh, hospitals, children's hospitals in the world and definitely in Britain. So he actually, the shunt didn't work very well because the pressure would build up. So he actually worked along with a, a scientist and a surgeon and they patented a new type of shunt which worked uh, really quite well. So, um, um, and he's known for that. You know, he was one of the, um, the producers of this. Um, and um, so that happened, and he created a charity, uh, the Roald Dahl uh, charity that benefits the, um, um, the hospital, right? And the, the poem that I'm, I am going to read is... Uh, um, on a plaque in the hospital, um, along with a statue of Peter Pan, but that's uh, another story about the uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital, right? So um, what happened is my uh, mother and father-in-law uh, had a farm in England, um, um, Angling, Angling Spring Farm, and down the laneway was where Roald Dahl lived. And Roald Dahl, we used to drive up um, past the place, and um, it was explained to me that that's Roald Dahl's place, and the gypsy caravan was in the um, back of the yard, which is one of the, I think they have paintings of it in one of his books about that. And so um, I got rather bored around the place, and this laneway was just filled with stinging nettles on either side. 
So I had um, a weed eater, and um, Eleanor's father um, had me go up and down clearing all the stinging nettles out. So I got down to the clearing, and um, Roald Dahl, by this time, was bent over. He had bad arthritis, and he came out, and he started talking to me. So I was studying Chinese medicine at this time and going to school, and he, um, so I started telling him about that. I was very enthused about Chinese medicine and acupuncture. So I told him about what I was doing, and he stops, and he looks at me. He says, you don't believe that horseshit, do you? And uh, I said, well, actually, I do. Um, so that energy is in everything Roald Dahl writes, you know, maybe adopted for kids, but uh, even as adult short stories are there. So this uh, poem that he wrote, it's the only thing he's done on Christmas, uh, for Christmas. And um, it was written in 1988. I think I met him in 1986. Um, so uh, if I can go uh, with this. Yeah. Yes, please okay. do. Hail to the Mother Christmas. Where art thou, Mother Christmas? I only wish I knew. Why Father should get all the praise, and no one mentions you. I bet you buy the presents, and wrap them large and small, while all the time that rotten swine pretends he's done it all. And that really... So hail to Mother Christmas, who shoulders all the work, and down with Father Christmas, that unmitigated jerk. <laughs> so that's it for the poem. I, I really, I love that uh, absurd edge that Roald Dahl always, always walks, even in his poetry, which I'm not as familiar with. I know, I think one of his his poems and mostly just his his stories so mm -hmm. um and you can see him him walking it right there right on the edge yep. between mm -hmm. you know <laughs> what's what's appropriate what's not mm -hmm. um, i initially actually at eleanor's parents place had um they he had they had the collection of his adult short stories and they're very interesting to read right? um um, so can you tell us a little bit about your, you have a short story as well by him, right? No, I don't. Oh, okay. I just um, have the story um, written probably in the 1950s about um, uh, a Christmas story around um, Cortez and uh, Von Donop Inlet. Perfect. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about about the story and, and, and why this story and why now? I read this story... Um, probably in 2004, in a uh, Christmas gathering, I guess, at the museum. And I was uh, approached uh, by Jane to be able to do it again. Um, and this is a good venue for doing it, I think. Yeah. I really like that Jane can be my, um, my uh, helper arm twister. Uh-huh. Because right. <laughs> what the listeners do not know... But I know is how many times I've tried to twist Gary and Eleanor. Eleanor, if you're listening out there, 
your turn will come one day too <laughs> into doing folk use. So, uh, so right. good job, Jane, and thank you very <laughs> much, Gary, for being here. Okay. Um, I'm super pleased. Okay. A Puppy for Christmas by Arthur Every Clayton. The Christmas I remember with a smile was one spent in Von Donop Inlet on Cortez Island. I was logging a timber claim near a valley where, years before, a hermit had hidden himself from the world. Our logging road led near the recluse's old shack and outbuildings, now long empty and storm-battered. For many years, this man sought the solution to that age-old problem, the squaring of the circle. He spent his long, lonely winter evenings cutting hundreds of wood blocks, all the same size, and with an equal number of these, he would form either a square or a circle. When confident he had solved the puzzle that had baffled mathematicians for more than a thousand years, he sent the details to McGill University with explanations, diagrams, and charts. When the reply came back saying, this wasn't new or any good, the man was deeply insulted. They pointed out flaws and mistakes in calculations, all of which failed to console him. He eventually became ill and one day was carried out of his dark, lonely hideaway, a demented man. At the time of this story, I was, or so I thought, reasonably sane, but anyone who later that day heard wild bellows and screaming yahoos being hurled across the inlet as I and an equally noisy puppy tried to drown each other out, might well have believed it was time I too was carried out and put away. It all happened because my neighbor's small boy wanted a puppy for Christmas. It was all he thought about, morning, noon, and night. For those who live in civilized areas, giving a child a puppy for Christmas would be relatively simple, a matter of going to a pet shop and buying that doggy in the window, but we lived in the isolated wilderness of Von Donop Inlet on the BC coast. Here, you just don't get a puppy out of a magician's hat. There are miles and miles of often stormy sea between you and the nearest store at Refuge Cove on Redonda Island. This store was serviced once a week at unpredictable hours by the Union Steamship Company. That gallant fleet of little vessels belonging to the Union Steamship Line had a long and varied career in coastal waters and brought not only loggers, fishermen, and their families to upcoast camps, but also were known to unload a motley assortment of domestic animals at various points along the way. A crated puppy was not unusual cargo for a line that brought chickens, pigs, cattle, to jippo logging camps and farms. It was all in a day's work. Reaching Refuge Cove to pick up this puppy when the boat docked and unloaded, unloaded him along with other freight was an ordeal fraught with hazards. The th whole thing had to be a clandestine affair for the boy believed implicitly that Santa Claus and only Santa Claus had the power to bring him his wish. He wasn't far from right, and before I was through with this whole surreptitious scheme, I wish fervently it had been Santa's sole responsibility, 
For one thing, it fell to me to make the trip that week to Refuge Cove for the mail, groceries, and the puppy. Further, I must be there when the Union boat docked and dumped the little fellow, which might be any time of the day or night. In this, I was lucky. The boat had unloaded and was pulling away when I arrived, but by now fine dry snow was falling, adding to my navigation worries for the return trip. Traveling these waters in winter can be a wet and sloppy business, for storms seem to be lurking round the next bend, and my boat, a 36-foot, weary, dilapidated, paint-worn wreck called the Dollar had trouble coping with heavy seas. I bought her when funds were low and optimism was high. Only an idiot or an optimist would have expected that thing to run. She had an equally ancient engine, which, in spite of renewed parts and many transplants, was the most cantankerous piece of machinery I had ever had the misfortune to own. She required more pampering and humoring than an ill-tempered wife. I had to coax, wheedle, and curse her before she'd show a spark or budge a cog, and in a storm about as seaworthy as an orange crate. But she was all we had, and a few storms she had valiantly chugged her erratic way through had endeared her to me through the years. All I asked now was that she'd do her stuff once more and get me down to Refuge Cove in time to pick up that crated mutt, release and feed him, and get him, along with our Christmas mail and groceries, back to camp before Santa was due. The dollar tried hard to enter into the Christmas spirit, but it was an effort. She chugged, coughed and spluttered the long, dreary way down Lewis Channel. As we neared open water at the entrance to Refuge Cove, she wallowed and rolled about like a drunken slob. In the same dispirited and lethargic mood, she rolled and wallowed her long, slow way home. But she did make it back, and before dark. A miracle I would normally have been thankful for, but today it only added to my problems. In darkness, I could have made it ashore with this lively bundle of fur without being seen, but it was still daylight when I drew up alongside the float, and that little pooch was a regular squirmier and more restless than a two-year-old who needs the bathroom. By prearrangement, I was to go in the evening over to my neighbor's house, tell them I'd met Santa further down the inlet, that he was running short of fuel, which was delaying him, and had asked that someone bring him gas. This was a cue for my neighbor to come to our house, be dressed as Santa, and then armed with a bag of goodies and the puppy, return, return home to Santa Claus, to play Santa Claus. But how was I going to hide and silence this miniature hound, who had the loudest yips and yipes of any small thing I've ever heard, when both our houses were near the float and in full view of all my movements. This was one angle of the situation that hadn't been too well worked out be between my neighbor and myself, and I wished he was with me to solve my predicament, since the whole thing was his idea. 
To keep the puppy quiet while I unloaded proved a hopeless task. He had the bounce and energy and the waggiest tail of any mother pup alive. And worse still, he had the loudest and strongest pair of lungs that ever gave vent to yappy barks. If I didn't watch it, the neighbor's boy was going to find out this dog owed his arrival to the Union Steamship Company and me, and not that bearded man from the North Pole and his reindeer. Finally, in desperation, I stuffed that squirming little fellow inside my Mackinaw and raced for the house. To drown out his excited squeals and baby barks, which were louder than a St. Bernard's, I began bellowing out, "'Tis the season to be jolly! Ho, ho, ho! Good King Wenceslas looked out! Santa Claus is coming to town!' These snatches of carols were interspersed with wild yahoos, which sent the rest of the camp running to their windows. Once inside the house, I turned little yappy loudmouth over to my wife, who quickly shushed him with a bowl of food. I still smile when recalling the racket issuing from inside my coat and the noise issuing from my throat as that precocious pup and I vowed to drown each other out that Christmas Eve when a puppy meant so much to a small boy. And I often wonder if the hills of Vondonup Inlet still echo to the woof-woofs and yahoos of that Christmas Eve when the snow lay all around and a little mutt climbed out of Santa's bag and made himself at home in a little boy's heart. Later that night, the sky cleared and a large gold moon rose over the hills of Undonup Inlet. Snow sparkled in the icy air and the night grew still and silent and the whole starry world filled with peace. Christmas Eve would soon be over. Or would it? Is Christmas really over when it leaves memories that last long after the hazards and ordeals of stormy seas and cranky old boats are forgotten, when only the knowledge that happiness is a puppy and his boy remain to say again and again, Merry Christmas. I feel like clapping. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> you can. I feel like crying. <laughs> oh, what a... What a um... What a great piece. Can you tell us what the title was that? And was that um, and author? Um, the author is um, uh, Every Clayton, Arthur Every Clayton. Um, and um, I don't know who he was. Uh, I think he might have been a teacher, but I'm not sure. It's it just feels um, like not f that far different from from today, right? Where I mm -hmm. still feel like you know uh, I like how he describes buying the boat when optimism hot, was high and money was low, which I feel like you can't be uh, an islander without having a boat. <laughs> right? Yeah, always things breaking down. And, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, that's, that is lovely. And I see you have a couple other things there. Are these things that you're going to share with us? No, this is the uh, original printout from, um, 
that uh, Jane sent me, and then I kind of printed it up into a larger format. Oh, nice. It, yeah. And it looks really, um, that looks different. It looks dated. It looks like something it, from not, you know, just printed on a, on a computer in Times right. New Roman. It would be nice to find out from that. I'm sure the museum would have um, who Arthur Every Clayton was. Yeah, yeah. Well, and now that their archives are digitized, yes. we're going to be able to find all those kinds of things and so much more. Yeah. So that's how I knew about that because I was listening to the radio before I came in and heard all about that. <laughs> you heard it here on Folk You Radio First. Thank you so much. Okay. I really appreciate it. And uh, Gary has said he will come back and, and do some uh, staying healthy folk you information for all of us using Did his. I? Oh yeah, you are. <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. Now everybody else has heard it too. Right. Um, to share your your other many experiences and angles and aspects of yourself. Okay. Um, even if Roald Dahl doesn't appreciate them, some of us do. Right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, and we will get a little bit more of our Charlie Brown Christmas music while we wait or welcome our next reader, Monica Narwaki, to read yet another piece. Thank you so much for tuning in to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM.
You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, and this is the Folk You Radio 101 show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We were waiting to hear a supposed mistake that was going to be in that, but turns out we are listening to uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, and it's a remix. So... Um, I didn't get to hear what was promised by our next reader and guest, Monica Narwaki. Um, so uh, this is this is what I'm supposed to be saying about Monica, and that is that she comes from the urban bustle of downtown Manson's Landing. If you've never been there, come check it out. She is the author of three books and literally thousands of to-do lists. She earns her living as a substitute teacher at the Cortez Island School, happily impersonating someone different every day. I also know Monica as one of my all-time favorite authors, especially of young adult books. And as an adult that reads hundreds of young adult books, I consider myself somewhat of an expert, or at least a decent judge. Um, there's actually probably not a week that goes by that I don't think about something that one of her characters has said or referred to. So it is indeed a very special honor for me to have Monica in the studio. And once again, I feel like Jane is an expert arm twister. I have not had Monica in the studio with me yet, so... Jane, I'm going to need lessons from you. You are, uh, so welcome, Monica. Thank you very much. I, this is my first time on Cortez Radio. I was so excited I wasn't sure what to wear, so I decided to power dress. That's why, that's what's with the Vera Wang gown. I just feel stronger in my gown and my Jimmy Choo's. <laughs> Do you like them? Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't believe you can walk in those things. They're so four-inch heels. And, of course, a tiara, clearly. Who would wear this without a tiara? Anyway, I was a little surprised to see you in your railroad jammies, but whatever. You know, only the best for my listening public. Okay, well, um, you- I've seen other pajamas in public that I actually liked better than the railroad pajamas. Like, what happened to, what's that, Tommy the Engine, or... Oh, what is that Thomas train? Yeah, Thomas. Th- Thomas. Thomas the Tank Engine. Thomas the Tank Engine. What happened to those pajamas? Those were really nice. But these ones have the flap in the back. Ah, So, nice. you know, I, when you got to go on the radio, you have to go you fast. You don't have much time. Yeah. yeah. yeah That's very yeah. professional of you, yeah. actually. Yeah, thanks. I Only the best for my listening public. Yeah, and we appreciate it. Thank you. So, hello, everyone. Hello, 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 Monica. Before you before you read the story, I thought maybe Mm -hmm. you would like to introduce what you're reading and why. Besides Um, the fact that we made you. Yeah, I would say that's my first six reasons between you and Jane. And uh, reason number seven is um, I love the museum. I love that we have this amazing archive of social history. I Thank God every day for people like May Ellingson and all these uh, pioneer women who who gave up their journals and their letter correspondence and things that they hung on to because I treasure them. This is my community and I love that I know the history of my community. And I chose the story that I chose because it was written by Rachel Houghton Brown. And that's the grandmother of my dear friend Joan Bevington, who is also a writer. And Rachel's piece, I think, is very well written. And I should tell you a little bit about her. 
Rachel was born in Kilbegan, Ireland. She immigrated to Canada in her teens, married, and began her journey across Canada to Cortez. She lived at, on the gorge with her husband, Kenneth, and their six children. Rachel wrote this story in 1982 when she was 95 years old. And, like I said, her granddaughter, Joan, still lives here on Cortez and carries on the family gift for storytelling. Rachel died in 1989 at the age of 102. And here is her story, Christmas on Cortez Island. Often, at this time of year, I think of the many Christmases I have had. One of my happiest memories is of Christmases on Cortez Island. These were the Depression years, and any social function was a major event. The celebration of Christmas 1936 stands out as an example of the Christmas spirit taking hold of an entire community. When the Women's Institute announced that they would have a Christmas tree, a hot dinner for everyone in the community, and a dance, there were immediate and numerous offers of help. Young men promised to get the tree and build a dining table with long boards and trestles. Other men volunteered to provide wood for the cook stove and heater and to fill and look after the gas lamps. Girl guides offered to make dozens of poinsettia flowers and to festoon the church hall with cedar wreaths. A list of the names and ages of the children was made and an institute member who was going to Vancouver was given the task of buying the presents for the children. An order was made out to be sent to Woodward's for enough vegetables and meat to feed 60 people. One dear old lady offered to make a real English pudding. We were delighted and told her we would supply the fruit. She said no, she would like to make this donation to the party. And Mrs. Allen said she would make the sauce. I got some rum. Sauce ain't no good without a bit of rum. A trio of musicians said they would be glad to play for the dance. On the day before the event, the Columbia Coast Mission boat called the Rendezvous was at the wharf, so we were sure of having the Reverend Alan Green, our beloved pastor, as master of ceremonies. The hall was beautifully decorated. A table covered with white paper from the Powell River Company was in readiness down the length of the hall, and a lovely tree stood in the corner decorated with yards of tinsel and colored bells. Now the day of the party was here. Four women took over the kitchen early in the day to make final preparations, to cook the roasts and make salads, and set the table. By five o'clock, everything was ready, and the people started to arrive, Mr. Green welcoming them at the door. Suddenly, we realized the pudding had not come yet. Two young men were sent to Miss Strange's home to help her carry it. We expected it would be quite heavy, a plum pudding big enough to serve 60, 60 people. In a few minutes, the boys returned. Miss Strange is here, they said, and here is the pudding. They handed over a little three-pound pudding pail, not quite full. We were filled with dismay. We'd been telling people about the lovely dessert they were going to have, and here we had a little pudding not big enough to serve 20 people, let alone 60. But Mr. Green, who was standing by, seemed a little amused and not the least concerned. He reassured us, It will be enough. I'll make small servings and serve it as long as it lasts. The guests were seated. A group of busy women in the kitchen filled the plates, which were then passed around by the boys and young men. Mr. Green, at the head of the table, kept up a cheerful and jolly conversation, and as soon as all the plates were served, he asked the blessing, and everyone began eating. It was a very happy crowd and a delicious dinner. When it came time to serve the pudding and sauce, Mr. Green did a noble job. He placed the pudding and a stack of saucers in front of him. 
carefully put a tiny teaspoon of pudding in the middle of the saucer and smothered it with sauce. Everyone seemed quite happy with it. I expect they thought it was so special that it had to come in small amounts. Or perhaps they thought this is the way they do it in England. We, who were responsible for the menu, gave a sigh of relief. Dinner over, the school teacher had a group of her pupils sing carols. Soon the adults joined in, and the old familiar songs of joy and thanksgiving rang out. During this time, the table was taken apart and put outside, and the chairs were placed against the walls. During a lull in the singing, a joyous sound was heard, the jingle of bells coming nearer and nearer. The children were bursting with excitement. Now the portly figure of Santa appeared in the doorway. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas, everyone! His voice sounded a little like Mr. Green's, but he was much bigger. He was certainly much fatter in front. The children were in the land of magic. Santa stood by the tree and called out each child's name, shook hands, and gave a present. The children were delighted. He knew my name. One little girl of four with a doll tucked under her arm held out the other arm and whispered in awe, Santa held my hand. After a delightful interview, interval of unwrapping presents and having them admired by all, babies and sleepy children were tucked onto the long bench in the kitchen. The dance MC took his place at the piano to announce the first dance. The music started up and the floor was soon covered by dancing couples. Dancing continued until midnight when coffee and cake were served. People visited with one another and the children who were awake played with their toys on the dance floor. Mr. Green then called the gathering to order. Now, dear people, it is Sunday morning and we will have our Christmas service. Will the men please put the chairs in place and open the doors to the church section? The doors were opened and an altar with candles and flowers was revealed. Our pastor appeared in his surplice, prayer book and hymnals were handed out, and the beautiful Anglican church service began. After the service, sleeping children were bundled up and carried by loving parents. Goodbyes and Merry Christmases were exchanged, and an evening of warm friendliness and joy came to an end. And if you've just tuned in, that was written by Rachel Houghton Brown in 1982, when she was 95 years old. And that was from the Depression. Mm -hmm. um, 36. From 36. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I, I love that. And I love the um, sort of fish, fishes and loaves meets Hanukkah meets Christmas <laughs> on Cortez aspect of... Yeah. <laughs> The pudding just stretching in, and and then I couldn't help but to think about were all the kids then drunk from the yeah. from the <laughs> from the oversaucing <laughs> that works on a couple of levels, yeah, right? What what perfect Christmas? Oh, thank you so much. What a um, we've had a really special, delightful show. Thanks to the Cortez Island Museum and Archives with with three special stories. Um, from the archives and we've gotten to learn a little bit more about what's happening at the museum. The thing that I really want to make another call out about, which is that the museum right now is in the process of archiving this pandemic. And um, if you weren't listening to the first part of the show, then let me put in my own words what really struck me about what Jane was saying, which I was I am one of the people, as many other people were, who who've asked the museum, what do we have from previous pandemics, especially the Spanish flu? I want to know what it was like for people living through these times. And they have very, very little. 
And so what they said is like, we don't want this time to go by without us archiving it. So your diaries, your daily schedule, your stories and essays, I'm looking at Monica here. <laughs> um, are, we need all of these things for, for the archive because I, I really want our children, um, I, I really hope this is super different then it's going to be next year and certainly then it's going to be in 20 years. I really hope we don't have to relive it in just this way again. So let's, let's you know, send in your stuff the, to the Cortez Museum, cortezmuseum.ca, I believe, um, and, and be part of creating the archives of this time. Um, so I'm doing Jane's work for her, not as well as she would be doing it, but I'm really alive with this possibility and how we're all going to help make um, make it memorable uh, for future generations. So if nothing else, we can learn about it. But I, I think, you know, the story that you just read, right, it just comes alive. Mm-hmm. It was well, diff- this is how we learn our generation that didn't experience the depression. These stories make it far real, more real for us. We can read a history account of the economics and the unemployment rate and stuff, but those things never really register with me as a learner until I read someone's personal story which is, of course, why I like stories so much. And some of past times on this island actually have come alive for me because of you. Oh, thank so. you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And thank you, uh, all neighbors, for your part in that. Um, I'm going. We're going to listen to a little bit more of the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack, um, and then I'm going to come back and... Uh, and twist everyone's arms for a little bit more about uh, how we can be reaching out to each other over Christmas. So thank you so much for tuning in and thank you uh, so much readers for, for giving us something to tune into today.
Welcome back to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio and the Folk You Radio Show. We we are sharing memories of Christmas past. I wanted, I'm helping some Cortez youth and uh, seniors helping seniors, which is Karina, to connect the, some of the youth of Cortez were talking the other day about Uh, with me about what random acts of kindness are and we were talking and thinking to ourselves about the people who on this island especially who might be alone for perhaps the first time in their lives like really alone this Christmas and people like Isabel and Noah who are keeping the Christmas community dinner alive through a takeout version um, really shined a light into the hearts and minds and souls of a you know of even a lot of the youth who will not be alone right because they have families we hope taking care of them um and so some of these youth were asking if they can make cookies or gifts or cards and deliver them to people out there who would find this useful and so Karina from seniors helping seniors is helping us find people but if you are out there and you're thinking to yourself boy I'd really like a a little Christmas card or a cookie delivered from a Cortez youth who's trying to make a difference or learn what it means to be part of a community. We'd love to hear from you. And you can just call into the radio um, at 250-935-0200 or even better, send me an email at you, the letter U, at folkyou.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. And let us know because... It's a wonderful opportunity for kids to learn how to reach out and make a difference in this way. So, um, Monica, I want to know a little bit about your memories of Christmas and what it means for you to be here on this little island at Christmas and and what your feelings are this year about how you're going to celebrate and how that's going to be different and how you're keeping the joy alive. Well... Well, Amanda, it all started in a 40-watt radio station in Fresno, California. <laughs> um, I, I thought I've been thinking a lot about Christmases when I was a kid lately, and my mom made Christmas really special for us, and we had traditions that we did every year, and I, th- I was thinking, you know, what, what were the most important things to me? And I... Th- I'm pretty sure you could have gotten me to trade all my gifts for an extra day of being home with just the family. That was my favorite part, knowing that when I got up Christmas Day, probably all the way to the end of Boxing Day with any luck, I wasn't going to have to see anybody but my tribe, my very, very closest people. And when I was little, that that generated such a feeling of security and warmth, and we have busy lives now far more than then and I, I i wonder how how it is for kids who were like me homebodies happier at home uh, often happier alone i wonder how the busyness is especially because it tends to crank up over the holidays and i felt when my dad died i was 14 and christmases after that were pretty uh unpleasant for a while there was a you know, a sudden new person in our lives and um, 
then immediately afterwards, my sister got married, my brother went to college, um, my mom moved, uh, everything. My life changed very dramatically right after that, and Christmases were really painful. And I didn't really think about why until much later when I realized that because of the contrast between the Christmases that I had come to count on and what they had become in, in that uh, aftershock of life there. And then, of course, there was, uh, you know, a, a difficult period with my family, with the coming out thing. And so Christmases were awkward at best. And slowly, slowly, with Shannon, we created a new feeling of that, that safety and just being home you know, just being at home with Shannon for Christmas is my best case scenario. So I'm not suffering <laughs> this year because I suppose due to being an introvert and a homebody. But, you know, since the moment I moved to Cortez, that's one of the things I've loved the most about being here is that Christmas isn't about winding up into a frenzy. And it's not about what you have or what you get or what you give. It's about who you're with and how you express your love. And and this year, I think, is an opportunity for all of us to really pare it down. Like, if you can only choose a few things, what do you choose? If you can only choose a few people to visit with, who do you choose? And if you know that, what's going on the rest of the time? <laughs> so I, I look at this as a, an opportunity to really, you know, just trim it down and say, yeah, I've, I've gotten a little bit ramped up, even on Cortez, and, and this year it's right back to what's important to me, to being at home in my beautiful, safe little home with the person I love the most in the world. And there's just nothing but good news in that for me. And Cortez Christmas takes me right back to the very, very best Christmases I ever had. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it also... Uh, takes us back to that, f or takes me back to the first reading that Jane shared um, of Ghislaine Douglas writing about being entirely alone, just surrounded by by nature and these creatures of the forest, and um, on Christmas and um, and what how what this time of year really is. It's so dark. I it, love that. Piece. I, I, yeah, Ghislaine. I mean, I, I I love all of her writing, but that stuff when she was living in the mountains there is, I guess because it's unfamiliar terrain to me and I can't even imagine. But, you know, there, her, her weather situation took her Christmas away like our, you know, we're having our own little natural uh, slap down. And, and, but it's, it could be the same, right? I, I doubt that any of us are going to look out our window, see a, a bear and a cougar and a coyote and a, 16,000 kinds of birds but we might be able to be quiet enough this year to go well this is enough I'm not alone even if all I'm looking at is my bird feeder I'm not alone because I can be here with the trees and listen to the way they sing their Christmas carols and it's uh I, and I'm grateful for you guys and what you do and the radio and all the ways that we connect I I'm a complete uh you know, technology and me don't really get along. I'm a bit of a troglodyte. But 
Did you get that joke? It's supposed to be troglodyte. Uh, that's funny stuff, Manda. Come on. I'm, I'm, I am life. Uh, it did take me a second. Laughing on the inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't like, you know, there's things I don't like about technology, but boy, am I grateful for it now. You know, I can talk to my family in Ottawa and Edmonton and, and we are having online competitions to see who can fill in the most jigsaw puzzles. Shannon and I are winning. Yay, Shanika. And uh, the, yeah, that's uh, I'll put that challenge out outside my family. Uh, if you would like to be involved in Puzzle Palooza 2020 with the Naraki family, uh, just shoot me an email and I'll uh, I'll get you in the runnings. Uh, the, the prize, by the way, is uh, respect disguised as disdain and sarcasm because that's how we roll in my family. Perfect. I I I'm, I'm I want to participate. I think I should get extra points though for the size of the puzzle. Oh yeah, you have okay. to post you have to post a picture of the completed puzzle and how many pieces it was. Because my, my I'm nephew thought he was winning because oh. he did his uh, three year old's eight piece puzzle. <laughs> but you know, then we finished a five hundred, and so the score is five hundred to forty one to eight. But then. Um, can't remember if my brother's was 500 or a thousand not to worry we're almost done another one. Oh, good because we're, we're deep into a thousand but this. it's been taking us the whole whole pandemic and we're still in the same 1000 <laughs> puzzle it, it's really hard it's really really hard <laughs> yeah you we, might want to find a different contest <laughs> <laughs> you, you haven't seen how hard this one is so <laughs> Uh, thank you, neighbors. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Jane, for helping make this a really special, special Folk You Radio 101 show. Um, and I love hearing from all of you out there. Um, I am also looking forward to being a little bit more quiet this Christmas. I, it's a little bit more forced for, for someone like me than maybe for Monica or Ghislaine Douglas, but um, I am really appreciating this, the darkness and the quiet and the sweet lights of, of, of friends and family and neighbors, even if they're burning from a little bit further away than they have burnt in years past. So thank you for being part of this community with me, with us, um, and for those little acts of kindness that you are enacting upon yourself, your neighbor, your community. Um, and I, if there's ways that I can help you or the children um, enact those little acts of kindness, please do let me know. And you've been listening to Folk U Radio on 89.5 FM. Cortez Community Radio, and I am hopefully going to be playing my awesome exit theme if I can find it, which I have done a little bit differently today, so I might need one more second where we listen to Monica (laughs) laugh why I find it. A priest Um, and a rabbit walked into a bar. The rabbit said, I think I might be a typo. Think about it, people. Okay, I do have it. I do have it up, and maybe even I'm playing it. Hold on, 